The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. The Investment Fix Podcast. Tune in today. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Kia ora and welcome to The Fold. This week, my guest is Hamish McKenzie, who's the co-founder of Substack, uh, which is, I mean, I, I, I'm going to call it an email newsletter platform, and Hamish is going to maybe listen back to this and wince, because he rightly says it's so much more than that, but fundamentally, it is a platform whereby people can build audiences predominantly using email as the, as the core distribution method, and then convert those into paid subscriptions and the spin-offs newsletters go out through Substack. Uh, Hamish is a New Zealander and and he's back in New Zealand at the moment even though he normally lives in Northern California and I find them a really interesting business that you know as he discusses a lot of the founding principles and, and the thoughts were about how social media in terms of its engineering and its algorithms basically it, you know, is, is sort of unpleasant um, and and does bad things to the world, and that email as a platform is is just sort of better. Um, and I think I think the thought was right, and I think that the way that they've set up the business is is just super interesting and clever. And as as you'll hear, twenty twenty was a year that Substack went from being a small bit player in the kind of media ecosystem and 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 one of any number of email centric startups to to being one of the most talked about forces in in journalism they recruited a bunch of really big names within it Glenn Greenwald Matt Iglesias and Andrew Sullivan to name but three but they're actually more than just journalists uh, more than just kind of iconoclastic male journalists writing for Substack. There, there is a huge range of, of people from, as he alludes to, history to professors to technology strategists. I mean, it's basically a, a place for writing that has value to you and for you to kind of give back to the creator. And it also gets into the, the teeth of some of these big knotty questions we're trying to figure out as a society right now in terms of how we deal with big technology. What is the role of of moderation, some uh, questions of speech, which are essentially unresolved and maybe unresolvable. And Substack has, you know, a, probably a relatively liberal line on speech in a way that's, you know, and in part people are being, are leaving bigger publications where they, they are feeling that the the range of what can be discussed and the nature of how it can be discussed is is limited there. That might become more of a problem for it in time or that might be a force that actually just sort of propels it forward and that's sort of part of what we talk about. There are some prominent New Zealanders on there, most notably David Farrier, Bernard Hickey, David Slack have all, all got good and worth reading Substacks. And just in, in general, I think it's a it's a really interesting platform and a, a really interesting discussion and it's definitely 
at the at the very minimum, it's a part of what the future of media and of of, of the funding of interesting and useful writing comes from. And they've done well enough, and this is almost as much as it must be terrifying for them. It's also a signal achievement that both Facebook and Twitter have either launched or announced or acquired newsletter plays themselves, uh, and that is they are particularly Facebook. Just if they've never seen a good idea that they didn't want to copy and obliterate the the those who had the idea. So uh, it'll be interesting to see whether that becomes a sort of a successful and lucrative part of their business, or just another thing that they try and do spend a lot of money on and just fail at because they try and steal innovation and import it, but it's not really core to who they are anymore, in my opinion. Before we get into it, I'm going to make an extra special plug for the spin-off members because you know the whole notion of Substack is that if you enjoy reading someone that you should contribute to the creation of it and that the more that readers contribute to the creation of something the the better that thing is the, the, that that's a fundamental assumption within Substack and it's it's allowed some people to make a living and that's also the assumption of the spin-off members that if you like the spin-off if you enjoy this podcast and if you can spare some money the, the whole function of uh, members is that you can contribute as little as a dollar and you can contribute as, as frequently or infrequently as you like. Every dollar is ring-fenced and goes directly into making more editorial and we are, yeah, the spin-off has grown. We, we would like to grow more. We'd like to do more. We really, really rely on our readership to fund us. It is our biggest source of revenue within the spin-off itself. You know, just something to think about while you're listening to this podcast, uh, that, that if you enjoy it and you can afford to contribute, we would love it if you did. If you go to the spinoff.co.nz forward slash members, uh, you can do that. And I would appreciate if you did. The other revenue stream for for the spinoff is, uh, is working with sponsors. And this podcast is brought to you by Vodafone, who, and I'm tremendously grateful to them for doing that because quite honestly, without it, I, I, I couldn't do the fold and I really, really enjoy doing it. Um, Vodafone for Business uh, promises innovation made simple and world-class network technology. Vodafone will help maximize the potential of you and your business. Find out more at vodafone.co.nz. Thank you. And this is Hamish McKenzie from Substack on the fold. Kia ora, Hamish. Welcome, welcome to The Folds. And really excited to, to have you on because I'm rapidly becoming consumed with an obsession with newsletters, which is, means that I'm probably about 300 steps behind you on that scale. Let's start by just having you pitch. Imagine I'm a journalist for a moment. Very difficult, but <laughs> p- pitch me Substack. Yeah, well, I think obviously you should have a publication on Substack. It's a place for independent writers. You can pursue the kind of work you've always dreamed of pursuing, write what you want to write uh, for an audience that is really interested in what you have to say. And if you want to, you can add paid subscriptions and maybe make some money from it. What is it about email as a distribution uh, vehicle that you that you like over the sort of more established models for, for journalism? 
Yeah, we don't think of Substack as being just about email newsletters. In fact, newsletters is kind of a shorthand. Substack is really, you get first-class treatment for the web and for the email. So you publish a post that goes out to all your devoted, like, signed-up readers on email. And anyone who's not already on your mailing list can find it on the web. So that part's really important as well. But the email part is really powerful because email is a platform that's not really owned or controlled by any one entity. It's a bit of an end run around uh, social media platforms like Facebook or Twitter, where a tweak in one of their algorithms is not going to affect how your work is seen by the audience who is seeking it. And really importantly, it's an app that almost everyone has on the home screen of their phone. So you don't need to go convince someone to go download your news publications app. You're already there on the most important real estate for readers. What led you to Substack? Like, how, how early did you get in? And it, obviously 2020 was, was insane um, for you all, and, it, um, and we will get to that. But what was it that attracted you to, to the idea? Well, we started Substack. It was my, uh, me and a friend, Chris Best, who's the CEO, in the middle of 2017, the things that attracted us to an idea was a general discontent, actually, with the state of the media ecosystem where we all live and are slave to an attention economy where we are addicted to um, and increasingly angry by <laughs> because of uh, our social media feeds where the content that is um, incentivized is stuff that polarizes us or divides us or makes us angry and in some good cases like makes us happy or delighted as well. And... Our thought was not to like, hope that someone would change the algorithm and make social media better that way or that some perfect regulation is going to come along from a government that would make social media good all of a sudden. Our thought was to create an entirely different system with a different set of rules. So we decided that to create this different system, you had to get advertising out of the picture. Direct payments was better uh, as a way to encourage more sort of trustworthy content production. And um, subscriptions in particular were good for encouraging a trust-based relationship because people pay over time and you as the writer have to maintain that trust of your readers and one model we had in mind was something that ben thompson does with stratechery ben thompson is a an american guy who lives in taiwan uh, writes about and analyzes the business models of technology companies and platforms in particular and he was writing this publication as a weekly blog post that was free and goes out to everyone on the web, and this, he still does this. And then three posts that you can get by email from him with a little bit more like ad hoc kind of quicker and dirtier analysis along the way for the true nerds. And those people could get those emails by paying $100 a year. And that model was working really well for Ben Thompson. We knew already he was making at that point more than a million a year. I think he's making more than $3 million a year doing this. And he was telling anyone who would listen you should try this model, it's really effective. And we just kind of thought, yeah, why don't more people try the model that led us to Substack? So in, on some level, I didn't realize the extent to which it was almost explicitly anti-social <laughs> um, from, from the jump, which, you know, at the time would have was a sort of an idea that was not fringe, but it was kind of, it, it feels like it's been mainstreamed over yeah. subsequent years. Do, is there some level of vindication about that? And certainly, do, do you feel like that is in part where the opportunity has come from? Is that more people have seen social media for what it is potentially? I think it's one of the big wins that has been blown at our backs. And we were lucky enough to get in with that thesis just before it became really popular. 
in 2017, Facebook was still seen as an unstoppable behemoth and there, there was discontent and grumbling about it because Trump had already come to power and some people held Facebook partially responsible. But it was the backlash uh, against Facebook had not seriously kicked in at that point. And the general public awareness about social media engagement-based models had not fully bedded in. For instance, there's a, there's a popular documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma, which is about a lot of these problems. That didn't happen until recently, like a couple of years after we started Substack. So yeah, I think it's been proven that that thesis was right and it's helped us that we were early on it. So 2020 was crazy. Just, you know, like we, we transferred across to Substack as a platform maybe, was it like 18 months or so ago? And, I, you know, I was talking to um, Dan Ashinsky, who used to write newsletters for New Yorker and um, BuzzFeed, and is a, he's a, writes a, a newsletter about newsletters, ironically, on Google Docs, which I quite enjoy. You know, Substack was one of a group of different people that he was talking about at the time. It didn't feel like you had any more or less momentum than any one of a number of different people, though it was explicitly targeted at journalists and writers as opposed to you know, all the other things that email can be used for e-commerce um, and, and so on. But it, felt, it feels like, you know, now from when we first spoke to and when, when I was talking with Dan, which was not much more than a year ago, Substack has now made the leap from an interesting experiment to being, you know, p- potentially like owning owning the area in a way that, you know, tends to happen with the sort of network effects of um, and the branding effects of technology. What, why do you think 2020, which had a few other things going on, I, I can't <laughs> recall. Why do you think 2020 had that had that impact on on user business? Or just just explain what happened and the extent to which it was opportunity versus strategy. You know, and, and you propelling it. Yeah, definitely both opportunism and strategy. But I think for the first part, what helps Substack stand apart from other email newsletter providers is that Substack has actually created a category. There, there are, people don't say, check out my newsletter, they say, check out my Substack. And it's partly because of that thing I mentioned before, which is, it's not just a newsletter, it's also, it's also got a web element, it's got payments as an option involved, it's got community elements, you can have content, you can have comments and discussion threads, you can have a podcast in there if you wanted to. And it's as much... Um, a publishing platform as a as a kind of business model. <laughs> it's like a state of thinking about how the media can be. And so while other people allow you to send email newsletters, most of them are designed for marketing or e-commerce purposes. We're very focused on writing and writing businesses. And so that helped us stand apart. The thing in 2020 that really changed or accelerated Substack's growth and caused a widening of the gap between Substack and the others is um, COVID, the pandemic. The pandemic accelerated trends that were already working in Substack's favour. One was that all of a sudden, and this might be a temporary thing, but it's certainly something that has helped us, people have had more time on their hands, more time to read, more time to start new projects, more time to write. The other major things like the economic turmoil that the pandemic has created, especially in the United States, where the like, pandemic is continuing without sort of an end in sight, where people are all of a sudden interested in new ways to make money online that they can do from home. And the media industry has continued to contract, and that 
uh, that contraction has been accelerated by COVID. So all of a sudden, journalists uh, who may have had stable jobs suddenly find themselves out of a job or are more nervous than they previously were about the purported stability of the job they're in. So all those things combine to increase Substack's momentum. The biggest names that, that you recruited were, were, you know, within the context of journalism, the likes of uh, Gwen Greenwald, Andrew Sullivan, Matt Iglesias. They came in with huge profiles and each one felt like a little mini earthquake because, you know, in a couple of those cases they were leaving publications that they founded or, or had a huge role in founding. Either way, they were a big part of what people thought of when they thought of those publications. Were there Was there a level of active recruitment with them and... There's the sort of the baseline, just kind of the tide comes in and, and the factors that you were just referring to. But obviously, as with any kind of 80-20 rule situation, those those whales, A, they help tow more more in behind them, but, but B, the, there's a, just the greatest quantum of revenue comes from that, that kind of a situation. Do you want to talk a bit more specifically about the three of them? Greenwald just showed up. We didn't recruit him. He saw some other writers he respected doing well on Substack and thought maybe that's an option for him. And there became this, this came this moment where he was with, um, he came to a loggerheads with The Intercept, the publication he co-founded, um, where he felt like he, his position was being censored on a story about Hunter Biden just before the election. And he thought that was untenable for him. It didn't fit with his principles. And so he saw the value in going independent, going directly to his audience through, through Substack. Andrew Sullivan, I had first reached out to him right when we started Substack because he was kind of a model or an example of this model working because he had previously done a subscription-supported blog in sort of 2014 and had done it for a year and just burned out because he was high-volume blogging all the time. In the meantime, since we started Substack, for reasons that are culturally related, I think, he became like, in some circles, like a forbidden writer. (laughs) And we hadn't reached out to him again since and kind of um, didn't know if that was going to happen. But then he showed up again and got really interested, in part because he saw writers that he respected doing really well on Substack, which is how generally our momentum happens with all kinds of writers. Matt Iglesias, we, um, we did go and recruit. In some cases, we do deals with writers to help them leave whatever their secure journalism job is to help them start their own publication, the publication they've always dreamed of starting and by giving them a bit of upfront money, we can de-risk that leap for them. And so Iglesias has been uh, public about the amount of money that he got, and it's in the New Yorker. We, we paid him an upfront advance of $250,000, and the deal is he can keep 15% of the revenue that he, his publication generates in that first year, and then you can flip to $0 and, and 90% of the revenue, which is the normal substat cut. And the, way, the reason we're doing that is because we think there's a bunch of writers who could do this and they just need to be encouraged to take the leap and it's good for, that's good for the ecosystem and it's good for the Substack business. I guess on some level, you're, every time one of these uh, big fish comes across, you're sort of able to triangulate their Twitter following and various other metrics to understand, well, there's a reasonably predictable, you know, you can model this stuff, right? Yeah, we can model it and with... We're we're getting better at that as we do more of them. You know, you referred to it glancingly there with talking about Andrew Sullivan leaving for what are, you know, what you term cultural reasons, and they're like of those three writers, all of them in some ways had had uh, 
clashes around I don't know how, how you would describe it, but basically they, they wanted to discuss things that um, whether the range of discussion that they felt was permissible within their publications was being somewhat limited. Does that accurately describe a, a large chunk of your sort of writers or, or readership, to put it another way? Like, is this basically white guys who are saying things that they, that <laughs> they feel like they're stifled? Uh, about saying it at other publications or, or are there non-white guys there? I've, there's a couple of non-white <laughs> Maybe guys. Maybe non-guys. Yeah, there's a huge Imagine. there's a huge variety of uh, writers who are extremely successful and saying interesting stuff across a diverse array of subjects on Substack. Th- that's, those are some particularly high-profile high people who, who happened in sequence around a, like a clustered period of time. But they're not the only people. It's just like that's a narrative-generating subject because those three happened so closely together. They, uh, I think that's one reason. Those three all felt uh, more constrained at their publications than they would have been independent, so they saw the advantages of independence. But if you look at the top publisher on Substack, who until recently wasn't really talked about very much, uh, and she was recently profiled in the New York Times by Ben Smith and got the attention she deserved, but was never talked about uh, at the time when uh, Sullivan and Greenwald and Iglesias were showing up. And she is making incredible amounts of money, has a much larger reach than any of those people, is a uh, Boston College history professor who writes a note every day to her readers about what's gone on in the day of news. She's writing through kind of what was an anti-Trump lens, but is like a gentle and sort of calm approach to recounting the day's events. And the same reasons that Substack are good for the likes of Andrew Sullivan, apply to her as well. She can go direct to this audience who love her work and are interested in what she has to say and they can support her so she can become not only like self-sustaining but she can become wealthy from her writing. But we also, we also in our attempts to recruit writers, try to go far and wide and get in a ton of different voices and, and not be pinned to any particular ideology or viewpoint. Just getting back to the the sort of model, like one of my favorite substacks is by uh, Brian Morrissey, who's ex-Digiday, writes about the media business in a really thoughtful way. Mm. And his <laughs> the substack this morning was about, in some ways, about the, the way that, you know, substacks kind of uh, reader revenue only um, commitments don't describe many successful media businesses. And, and if you think of what, what you're creating for writers as, you know, ultimately little mini media businesses, mm-hmm. in some cases much more than mini. And he said that the subset's going to have to figure out ads at some point mm-hmm. and uh, do more for distribution. Like basically what what it is, is, is Substack just replicating the kind of, you know, the same thing that happens on almost every platform, which is, a few people at the very top do incredibly well out of them. Happens on Spotify, happens in the freaking movies. You know, like yeah. it predates technology, but it's in some ways exacerbated by it. That basically, if you come in with a high profile and a big Twitter following, you can punch out to a really good living. Yeah. If you're on those middle tiers, it's harder. And it's made harder still by the absence of the ability to kind of plug in different revenue models that might take you from starving to being able to eat. Yeah, I think we can um, – I'll address the advertising piece second, but the there's a ton of stuff that Substack can and will invest in to help readers find new writers to fall in love with and writers to 
uh, get discovered by readers who can fall in love with them. And there are services that we can offer too, and have started to pilot, where we kind of think of Substack as a platform for independent writers that can't just be software. Like one of the sort of problems I think with Silicon Valley is that they think of software platforms as being at stopping at just the software piece. Where we think that if you're going to be an independent writer who's going to build a business on Substack, then you um, can improve your business and have a greater chance of success if you might, might have access to editing, for example, or design work or legal defense, all of which we have very early stage pilot programs going on for. Where we Will they ultimately be like a service that you can plug in and in a relation for a smaller cut kind of thing? Yeah, something like that. Something like that. They won't be Substack provided, but they'd be Substack facilitated. Like we'll help you connect to an editor. And in some cases, uh, if it makes business sense for Substack, we may subsidize that editor. The distribution thing is a really big and interesting problem to try and tackle. Uh, and the way we would think about that is not to, for Substack to recreate the dynamics of an engagement-based social media feed, but to add horsepower to a recommendations network where writers and readers can recommend each other, for example. On the advertising front, we won't ever do advertising. It's not our business. It's not our interest. We're not going to support advertising technology. Some people put ads, sort of their homespun version, into their own publications. It's not necessarily because we're religiously against advertising, like we think advertising has a pernicious effect on the world or anything, but we think that subscriptions are much more interesting and that if you have an ad in there in any way as the writer, you are subconsciously or consciously affecting the model of what you end up producing. And you can be weirder, you can uh, be more free with format, you can say things uh, that might not otherwise have been said if your model is subscription-based rather than advertising-based. And we want to free people up to go pursue that model and pursue that opportunity. And another part of it is that I think... It's the more interesting business and technology area to explore. There's been 30 years of innovation on online advertising. And it's, re it's got us to this point where, okay, the way that plays out is that Google and Facebook become the kings of the world. But with subscriptions, with direct payments, there hasn't been as much innovation around that. And it hasn't been baked into the culture as much that you might pay an independent uh, creator who you really love. Patreon has helped bring this on a lot but there's so much more to do for instance on substack just a little thing is that as the publisher with paid subscriptions turned on you can offer your own discounts like maybe you offer a limited time christmas discount for your subscriptions or you want to set up paid subscriptions just for students and there's lots more area to explore there and uh, bundling might be another one in the future for example if several writers decide to join forces together and then split up the revenue among themselves. There's lots of cool stuff to explore there. And I think taking the eye off the ball on subscriptions to go after sort of what would be easier advertising dollars would be um, a mistake. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa, with over 4,000 out-of-home advertising sites nationwide across both street furniture and retail centres. I'm super grateful to O Media for enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, Jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. 
Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Just, just before we move on to, to talking about your cool new friends who've arrived in the newsletter business over the past few months, <laughs> um, somewhat larger and more well-capitalized potentially, I just want to talk about moderation, which is obviously, you know, in some ways what big technology has been bedeviled by has been, it's like yeah. attempt to engineer and motiva- moderation, also the way, that it, the, the, the way that it outsources it can feel kind of particularly uh, ghastly. Moderation is, is expensive. It, automating it still, even with all the greatest will in the world, doesn't seem like it does a particularly effective job of it. And all of these platforms start with um, just as you, know, you, you alluded to Substack's vision at the start, they, they've got a lovely vision and then unfortunately humans come in and, and make a mess of your sandpit. What, you know, what, what, what is your stance on it and how do you practice it to, to this point? Like, where, where, where is the line for you? Yeah, it's interesting because when you talk about moderation questions bedeviling platforms, we don't hear that much about WordPress having a huge problem with this. We hear a lot about how Facebook and Twitter have, and, and YouTube have huge problems with this. And I think one of the key differences there is that WordPress is not deciding what you see in your de facto newspaper. It's not pushing stuff into a feed. Active versus passive yeah, kind of consumption. And, it's, it's, yeah, and, and also it's not like Facebook and Twitter, are because their model is based on engagement, they will amplify and reward content that's not necessarily about giving you a great reading experience or helping facilitate a common view of the truth or anything like that. It's about what provokes a strong response. And often what provokes a strong response is shitty information or um, bad news or stuff that is designed to enrage you. Is, is there anyone you've turned away? We uh, we did kick off a neo-Nazi early on in the days. <laughs> um, so... so to explain our sort of approach, like we think Substack is closer to WordPress than it is to Facebook and Google. We're not amplifying. Like if you want to be a, a successful purveyor of misinformation, you should probably go to those big misinformation amplification engines that have been designed almost for that purpose. Huge audiences there for, for yeah, that. Yeah, uh, that's how you build your movement. Yeah, so we think we're closer to like WordPress. We're like this archipelago of independent uh, islands and the readers have the power to opt in and out of those experiences as they see fit. They can be their own they can be their own um, sort of moderators and the writers can moderate their own communities. And we want to give them more and more tools to help them moderate their own communities. So we are massive believers in the free press. That's number one. And we don't think that the free press can be easily decoupled from free speech and uh, freedom of expression. And so we want to have a diverse array. We, don't, we want to be content neutral, viewpoint neutral, and we won't take a heavy hand in like content moderation. But we do have a content guideline that protects Substack at the extreme. So when there's people inciting violence or porn is one thing we don't allow, for example, or hate speech, we have the way to, we do have that tool as a, as a fall, fallback to kind of protect the overall integrity of the ecosystem. What did you think when big technology finally, it almost felt like it had gone from sort of three and three quarter years of basically just, you know, Trump can say what he wants to suddenly... He's just gone, which I, I find myself in this perverse position of I thought the three and three quarter years was really bad, you know, re- really poor kind of moderation and, and, and decision making. And then I just disagreed with the decision to just blanket ban for, over something that basically happened off platform. 
What, what's your perspective on that? And say he turns up saying, I, I want to launch a Substack, what do you say? <laughs> well, I, I'm not going to, I won't address the hypothetical. Why if, not? If, if stuff like that comes, because you can, you can play that game <laughs> until but infinity. I mean, but it is like, like it, it's, it's, it's almost not a hypothetical. You know, he approached Paolo about um, coming on. Like, are there figures who are just too hot? for Substack for reasons that might be beyond it feels like a almost like it's a it's not completely unimaginable and and surely you have on some level contemplated it yeah when Trump arrives if Trump ever arrives we'll make that decision at that time and I won't get into well, you know, what internal discussions might have been about that particular person however I can definitely and we definitely sort of sympathize with the Twitter position on taking him off Twitter at that time based on that series of events. But also it's just like a really difficult position that kind of can't really win there. And, and part of the problem for them is that they're in this, their business model incentivizes the stuff that leads to the sorts of behaviors that embolden and encourage Trump. Our approach is not to get into the game where the question is not, what's the right degree of censorship? Our, our approach is to try and fix the system at a root level so that the incentives encourage different things. Speaking of, of big technology, um, both Facebook and Twitter, as I understand it, have either announced or acquired um, newsletter plays, which on some level must be quite flattering. On another, you know, Facebook don't tend to play well with <laughs> others. They're also very bad at launching products, to be fair. Like, there's a reason why they acquire and they've just got an amazing list of uh failed executions as well as some that are quite successful you you had a, a very good tweet exxon announced a solar energy project um when twitter uh, uh announced the acquisition of review which is a sort of a substack like service G- give me an honest when you're lying awake in bed at night rather than a sort of here's the the corporate response to um knowing that these you know multi-billion dollar listed well-capitalized entities uh, are uh, now looking at your lawn. Yeah. Just to clarify, it was Facebook I called Exxon. I called uh, Twitter General Motors. <laughs> These are like uh, a subtly uh, important uh, distinction. Um, they're, both, they're both good lines. Yeah, thanks. Um, the, the, honest, the honest response is it's going to be a hell of a fight, and we are not working on the assumption that Twitter and Facebook are going to mess it up. We are, gonna, we are working on the assumption that they're going to build great products and that it's of existential concern to them. Um, you know, maybe it's not. Maybe they. Maybe it is just a like sort of random side project for them, and they don't invest that many resources in it, or they can't actually execute. But we're working on the assumption that they're serious and they're coming after this opportunity, and we can't be complacent. And that is kind of scary. They are massive, uh, well-funded corporations that can give writers infinite uh, distribution if they choose to, and can pay writers a hell of a lot of money to steal them from Substack if they wanted to. Um, but it's also invigorating and exciting. It's very validating that this is a good model and that this is an opportunity worth going after in a big way. And it's very clarifying for us in helping tell the story about what Substack is all about, which is helping make a better future for writing and being very writer-focused. We're not a social media advertising company with a bolt-on who decides at some point that they want to care about writers too. So that part of it is, um, it's, both, it's both scary and exciting, and I, I can't really separate those two things. But 
that feels like good energy to have. Uh, what what have your so you've got some pretty amazing investors? Y Combinator and is it Anderson? Anderson Horowitz. That's, yeah. that's insane. How and and I'm assuming they're on. They'll have representatives on your board, or you'll be in contact with uh, people there. What what's their vibe like? Are they? Yeah, it's it's that weird combination of of the validation of the original thought and uh, you. There is a there are paths where you dominate, and there's paths where they just sort of strang- you know, slowly strangle you. What what what's their their perspective on it? The investors. The, the investors' perspective is like, let's go. The game is on, and it's a Silicon Valley mindset. So there's no particular <laughs> there's no particular loyalty to in, any one entity. They just want to see like the best the best thing went out and get big and make a lot of money. I think, uh, well, our our investors, all of them, really believe in the mission and invested for the mission as much as um, the financial opportunity. So they feel like good partners to have, like good people to talk to. They're all very friendly. The most, the most useful part of the, having those investors is that they help us figure out how to build a company. It's not like, this is what your mission should be. This is how you should... Um, design your business model. It's um, how do you build an HR operation in your team, and you know when should you be thinking about hiring more execs and that kind of stuff. Which is how, how many? How big are you right now? Twenty five people. It's crazy, right? Like I remember when we were talking, you were like six, and that, since, <laughs> and now you're so much bigger, but also still tiny. Yeah. You know, are you shorter people? Like, is your would you like to move, make the pipe, the, the development pipe, move faster? Yes, just generally, we are racing to catch up with demand. Um, we are under capacity, probably. We need mm-hmm. to hire people. This year is going to be be a big year for hiring. Have you? When was the last raise you did? Have you got? Are you, are you well capitalized? Do you feel like you've got enough? Or do you yeah, we've got we've got um, we've got plenty of money. There's there's questions about. Well, would it be good to have even more money so you can go out and compete aggressively against uh, Facebook and Twitter, for example? To, to like attract more writers to the platform because that, that's the thing I wonder about right like to what extent is this there must be some element of, it's definitely in vogue right now and in, in every you know no, no trend lasts forever and there is mm-hmm. you know I certainly am more circumspect about subscribing I probably need to unsub to a few letters because they pile up right just like your, your New Yorkers do mm-hmm. in the old world um, the, like I know there are only so many kind of writers who you you know you must have your your list of people this these, these you know both on a niche or a mass market level can command audience and if Facebook were to go on an acquisition spree or, or Twitter um, that diminishes the pool like to what extent is there a sort of a danger of a, a peak newsletter or of most most of the audience having enough to keep them happy and not wanting to just clog the box with, with things that ultimately end up unread. Yeah, one, this comes up a lot, and one thing is, I think people underestimate how many people there are in the world. <laughs> like, and with this model, you don't need to like, create like the next... a couple of million, right? It's a couple of million, I, I something like that. I recently, but... <laughs> yeah, it's on Wikipedia. Like, you don't need to build the next BuzzFeed that has a, a, an audience in the hundreds of millions, and it's not like there's only room for a certain number of BuzzFeeds on Substack. It's, you are an indiv- independent writer, you can have... 2,000 people who really are into what you're writing about and they pay you and that's enough to support your livelihood. Um, and there's lots of groups of 2,000 of, uh, people around the world. The, the thing about 
what's is there a finite pool of writers who can do this? I think in the current state, <clears throat> in the current state, there's there's probably a finite number of writers who look like journalists who have strong social media followings who would be obvious targets if you are building a base for your uh, Substack like business to go after. Um, and we need to go and get them. I think that kind of the way we think about that is opportunity is perishable. Like um, there is a moment here and, and Substack's in a good position to uh, do well in it. And so we are going to be aggressive on that. Um, but another way of looking at it is from the reader point of view, how many readers are there in the world who are willing to pay to have a better media media experience and particularly to have their itches scratched by writers who do a great job of uh, covering the thing that they're really interested in. And most of those publications don't exist yet. They're waiting to be invented. And so I think there's lots and lots of um, room for growth just on the writing part, but there's also room for growth on audio and video and live streaming, etc. Like a lot of this is predicated on the, the US is just such a monstrous market. Three, you know, 330 million people, a decent chunk of them, very wealthy um, by world standards. I look at New Zealand and I wonder if, you know, with 5 million people uh, proportionally less wealthy than the US, you know, you know is, well, I guess the question I'm trying to ask is like, is this something that is um, in smaller markets not as applicable if you are focusing, if you're not from New Zealand writing for the world, but from New Zealand writing for New Zealand in terms of just achievable market? Yeah, I think it's a good opportunity. I think if your audience be- becomes more focused and defined and you're delivering high-value stuff to them, then you can charge a higher price and therefore you don't need as many subscribers to sustain your writing business. And again, I think the numbers are, are, are small enough to make it financially viable that a market like New Zealand can support a lot of successful substack. So, how, how many are there right now where you'd look at this as something that approximates like a median wage uh, in within New Zealand, without naming names? Oh, within New Zealand, a hand, like a handful, and not not not. How many, many are in your hand? <laughs> like, yeah, no, like single digits. Single digits, yeah. yeah. But it's not New Zealand has not been a particular area of focus for recruiting at the moment for for, for, for obvious reasons. Well, it's more like the U- we are in the US, and there is yeah. a bunch of there like there is a bunch of like lower hanging fruit there to go after, mm. and le- and sort of less convincing. I hope that New Zealand will also like come along for the ride, but um, yeah, we haven't been able to we haven't dedicated many resources here. So, um, just just to kind of swing to to talking about the broader media. Uh, ecosystem. What, what what is what is your sort of perspective on it? Because New Zealand is so you know because we've had this sort of unique um, or not or near unique experience of the pandemic, we we sort of look at it, but it's it's abstracted to an extent. Like and and certainly the the media in New Zealand the collapse of Bauer aside, and even there there's been some kind of a a, a rebirth and reinvigoration of, of, of a number of those titles. It doesn't feel like it really happened here is that because it's delayed or because we just sort of ducked ducked the missile um who knows but do do you feel like when, when you're looking at those big media institutions on a on a u.s and world scale what 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 do you see happening like like you know because substack can be read as a threat to the the models of the the big media uh, companies, yeah. What, what what is the next? What's what's an honest um, assessment of whether what the next few years look like to you? 
I think the Giants will continue to be Giants and may even grow into larger Giants. New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, and the likes, Washington Post. And then the people who are doing niche publications, and particularly on Substack, are also going to really thrive, and that's going to grow as an ecosystem. And any existing media institutions in the middle is going to be a really tough time for it's already a tough time for the US newspapers are shutting down left, right and centre, especially in communities. So I don't think Substack is necessarily competition to traditional media. I think it's actually an opportunity. I, I think we have not sought to work with traditional outlets so much because there's unlearning that has to happen and there's adapting to like the Substack way of life that would have to happen. And too often they would be trying to make the adaptation happen in the other direction, like make Substack work for us. And we, you know, that might be an interesting business for someone else to go after. What we're more interested in is the next generation. And so for next generation outlets who are organized as a newsroom, I think Substack can still make sense. For example, the Dispatch is a a center-right politics publication with a newsroom structure and has editors and fact-checkers and some business people. Just a much lighter weight kind of organization built natively on Substack with the Substack model in mind and that is doing outstandingly well. And the Bulwark is another one. It fits a similar profile. It's also like anti-Trump right-wing politics and it just so happened that those two sort of watched each other. And they're using Substack to do a premium bundle of newsletters and podcasts on the side of their other operation which is a an, an ad-free website also um, and that's re- working really well for them and I think traditional media organizations I don't think it's going to be like we can do a sub stack now and that's going to save them or like reinvent their um, prospects but they could do they could invest uh, and be important participants and fostering the next generation publications and the next generation of writers who are going to succeed, succeed in, a, in a media ecosystem that looks different in the future because they're already well-placed to do that with their editorial resources, their ability to tell good stories, their existing distribution channels, and um, money. They can fund some writers to get started and see where it goes. We're almost out of time, but it would be remiss of me not to <laughs> get a little bit of... Musk chat in. You worked at Tesla during the relatively early days, and he was nominally your boss, is that correct? Yeah, nominally. Very nominally. He he hired me to go work at Tesla to be the lead writer, and, and it was January 2014 when I started, which is, um, you know, he was already very big and famous in Silicon Valley and starting to get very big and famous along the, around the world, but in a cult level, and it's not like, not at the level he is now. What, 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 what were your sort of lingering memories of of that period how long were you with tesla and i lasted like just over a year which is actually pretty long in tesla time but um yeah i was tossing up by by the end of that time whether i should stay or not and felt like i was more excited to go back to the life of an independent writer so i went and wrote a book about tesla after that yeah do do you remember it fondly and and what are your sort of what yeah what what are are your main kind of memories of that period because you know, he's now the richest man in the world most days and uh, certainly one of the most famous and feels like for better and worse where humanity is almost like he's he is steering humanity more than almost anyone else on on this planet uh, what, what you know if, if that if that thesis is true 
do you think he's an appropriate, uh, yeah, an appropriate person to be doing that? Like based on no one, no one is the appropriate person. Clearly, to do clearly. That. <laughs> but if if you if you sort of have to um, to live with it, like, do you think that he's, you know, no one man should have all that power? But if it's going to happen, what what what, what do, do you do? You, do you think that his his intentions are good? Like, it's a, he's such a complex and divisive figure, which yeah, you know, should set a substack. Doesn't yeah, he should. Um, yeah, my, so the first question is like, what are my memories like? My memories are really happy from that time. Had I, if I had I held on for longer than I did, I think maybe my memories would be less happy. It's a really difficult place to work, but it's full of exhilaration and excitement. And, you know, I got to go inside this incredible company and it's an incredible time in history, like in the same room as this incredible figure in history. And I would never trade that. That was an amazing experience. And I'm also glad that I left when I did. Is he the right person to be God? for the multiverse. <laughs> <laughs> I would not want to be, I would not want him to be my dad. I would not want him to be my friend. But I think in terms of the way the economy and is structured and the way power structures work right now, I think a battering ram like him has been useful for society in helping make things that needed to happen happen like electric cars, like getting off fossil fuels. He has to get a huge amount of credit for getting the world off fossil fuels. And personality things aside, um, I'm glad he did it and I'm glad he took the initiative and I'm not sure that anyone else would have done it in that time as quickly. In terms of exploring space and uh, landing rockets back on their launch pads to make them reusable... That is a, like a massively underrated achievement that could change the course of human populations through millions of years in the future. And, and you know, maybe it doesn't, but it's increased the chance from almost zero to some percentage. <laughs> and I think, I think that's like at least really interesting and it could be really important depending on your opinions of whether, about whether or not humanity should just die with, die on planet Earth. And I'm not sure. I'm not 100% sure where I sit on that. <laughs> <laughs> Great buzzy note to end on. Thank you so much for, for coming on the, the fold, Hamish. And good luck. It feels like you've strapped yourself to your own rocket ship now. And uh, it's, it's, it's going to be wild. I, uh, and, and I will be watching. That was The Fold, brought to you by our partners at O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Huge thanks to O Media for sponsoring this episode of The Fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Kia ora e tewi, te ai here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.